So I wanted to start with a story that I heard earlier this week. Um, it's about a Tibetan teacher who came over into India. This is sometime last century. And, you know, when he got to customs or whatever it was, um, he didn't speak the language and he didn't have to write papers and, um, you know, it just didn't go well. And it being a, um, the way it was at the particular time he was there, he ended up being put in jail for uh, trying to come illegally into the country, basically. Is the volume okay? You got it okay. Um, and so they, they had him in prison for like three months. Uh, but, you know, because he hadn't really done anything terrible, he was treated okay. He just had to stay there. And then the, eventually they said, all right, well, this guy just seems to be okay. And they brought him out and said, okay, well, we're going to release you now. And he said, oh, could I stay? And they said, what? You know, in the whole history here, nobody has ever said that they wanted to stay in prison. And he said, well... It's great here. You know, I get fed, I have a place to sleep, and pretty much everything's taken care of, so I just get to practice all the time. I love it. This prison thing is great. And so, um, you know, it, this is illustrating that it's very much our approach to life that um, determines our happiness in many ways. I'm not saying this is the best response or what we should all aim for, but there's something kind of delightful, I find, about a mind that's so flexible. It just uh, knows what it's looking for. Oh, I'm looking for good opportunities to practice. This situation seems to work. Why would I stop? <laughs> this seems good to me. So the analogy in the written teachings for a mind that is like this is, a, is said to be a mind that is very vast and not easily disturbed by the little things that happen in life, you know, like getting put into prison and things like that. So, or other things. And the analogy is that if the, if the mind is kind of small and cramped and just concerned with getting what I need, um, which you know, we have all experienced the mind like that, then it's, it's said to be like a little cup of water. And if you put in a salt crystal, a sizable salt crystal, the water becomes completely undrinkable. And that's kind of the equivalent of something happens and we get knocked completely off course. You know, the mind is totally overtaken by irritation or by desire or by whatever it encounters. It gets triggered, basically. And then the, the corresponding, if the mind is vast and you know, has developed the heart qualities to be uh, very broad, very deep, then it's supposed to be like a, a river. And if you imagine a freshwater river that's very clean, uh, 
flowing and you put a even a pretty big salt crystal in that, no problem. You can still drink the water. And that's like the mind that can just, you know, allow things to arise and pass within it. It's a nice analogy because we can kind of intuitively understand um, both of those. Many of us have had tastes of the, the river-like mind, or sometimes the sky is used, or the ocean, something vast that can handle everything. So I wanted to talk today about um, the process of developing loving-kindness in particular as a quality of heart that is that has certain vastness to it. You know, sometimes we think about loving kindness, there's many dimensions of it as being warmth or um, something like that. But the, the sense of it being a real strength of mind is when we have the love connected to wisdom, and when it becomes a wisdom quality. And there's a lot of, a lot of information in the teachings about, about this aspect of love. I actually, I talked a few weeks ago about the Metta Sutta and how it has in it um, three different sections that correspond to the three different trainings on the path. So ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom. And I love that love has all these different aspects to it. It's very complete practice. So in the realm of ethics, it it amounts to non-harming, you know, our intention not to harm is our intention to bring goodwill to what we're encountering. And then in meditation, it can be an object of concentration. It can um, help strengthen the mind in various ways. And it can be uh, an object of insight also, to notice how loving kindness forms and how it passes away and how it too is conditioned, things like that. And then in the realm of wisdom, We have loving-kindness as an intention, as a a motivation for how we live, essentially, as well as an understanding, an understanding of non-separation of self and other, for example. So these are more of these things I'll talk about today. When we first begin to practice something, including loving-kindness, we tend to make it deliberate and, and kind of conscious, you know, like when we're practicing wise speech or something, sometimes our speech gets a little stilted while we're trying very hard to be, you know, true, beneficial, kind, etc., timely. Or similarly, if we're, say, we're learning an instrument, uh, we'll, we'll play music first, that's, we'll, we have to kind of remember the fingerings or remember the, uh, how to you know, how to move the slide or the valves or the play the keys. And then later, uh, as we develop the skill, it gets more integrated into the body, right? And we can just do it, and it's more just a, a part of uh, how we are in that situation. And love is the same way, so it, it may be something kind of deliberate that we do, and we think in our mind, okay, I have to bring metta to this person, or I have to sit and consciously develop this. And actually, I do recommend that, um, even for long-time practitioners, it's always good to keep that up. But there is a way in which um, loving-kindness or goodwill or metta can just become part of our way of being. Yeah. So 
This is helpful. One way that we can talk about metta as an expression of wisdom is to consider it as part of a list that's called the parami. Um, This is a term that means, actually it literally means the other shore, Um, but it tends to be translated as perfection, which I'm not sure why. Um, So like the perfection of loving kindness. Not because we have to be perfect at it, but because it's a way of tuning up the heart, I guess. And the, the background behind that term, parami, is, which is used in both the Theravada and the Mahayana tradition, is that these are the qualities of character that the Buddha developed in all of his prior lifetimes before he was born as Gotama and became awakened in that lifetime. So he had you know, a bunch of other lifetimes before that. And it's not just that awakening is some um, moment that just happens in the mind or something. There's a lot of build-up to it that uh, comes from developing our, our character, our ethics, our meditation training, um, all kinds of things. And so it's said that he did this in other lifetimes. And there are stories about that called the Jataka Tales, actually. So I just want to read the list of the um, paramis, just so you know what they are, since I've alluded to it. They are generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. So it's interesting that it's ninth out of ten. It's a fairly advanced uh, practice when it gets to be in the wisdom realm. And there's a lovely book by Ajahn Suchito uh, called Parami, and he talks about all ten of them and um, brings a lot of interesting perspectives to how they interrelate and how they can be practiced in daily life. I, I highly recommend the book. I'll be talking a little bit about the some things from the Metta chapter and also just some other teachings coming in. One thing I noticed when I read about loving kindness from him is that he he's a little bit critical of certain aspects of loving kindness practice that we tend to think are are the, the, the core of it. Sometimes we do. So, for example, he says a couple times that it's not just the generation of a warm feeling, which we can, if we want to do metta practice in order to feel good, we often sit down and, you know, think of kittens and puppies and people that we love, and then we feel warm and happy. And it's not that this is a bad thing to do to the mind. That's a nice state to put the mind in. But he, he emphasizes that, that this doesn't really go far enough. You know, this is not going to be transformational for the mind, if you will. And he also um, points out that if we put other people into categories, so this is another aspect of metta practice, is we're supposed to practice for ourselves, for a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, a difficult person, and all beings. Those categories were actually invented uh, later. They were they're part of the um, commentarial tradition that came into being around the 5th century that practice. Um, 
But he's critical of this because what he says is what we do is we put people into categories and we say she's a friend, he's a difficult person, he's a benefactor. And so what he encourages is that after you, he says you can do this, you can put people in all those categories. He says then swap all the labels around and see how it is. (laughs) And it's interesting to do that because we discover, yeah, you know, actually there is a way in which, um, you know, my friend has some qualities that are difficult for me. Or there's a way in which that person that I normally, you know, don't like very much, I have to admit that in terms of practice, they've been a real benefactor. You know, I really learned patience from dealing with that person or whatever. And so we we see that the categories are really perceptions that we have assigned to different people. And it's not that the people have those qualities. And this is important because one important aspect of metta is to realize that people are not just one thing and that there's a there's a connection between me and other people because we all share kind of the same human qualities at a very base level and so um, the very practice of dividing people up into categories to wish metaphor is um, undermining metta a little bit this is worth reflecting on so Ajahn Suchito treats metta as a wisdom practice very clearly. He's like, this is a way to transform our mind and to help us, what does wisdom do? It helps us understand uh, in a way that's helpful to us. We understand all kinds of things, but what the practice says is that a lot of our understandings are a little bit off. You know, we don't, we're not quite seeing it the way it is. And so wisdom is about getting that clarity and really understanding how things are. And he says that basically that metta can be practiced in a way that does that. Very interesting. So he says, um, in particular, when we make the resolution of kindness, not just toward kittens on a nice day, but even toward cockroaches on a bad day, when we include dictators and brutal maniacs, as well as all aspects of ourselves, then we're making metta into a perfection a vast and transfiguring way of life. The result is a mind that is grounded in wisdom and compassion and which easily opens to the peace of Nibbana. The practice is to cultivate a conscious field of kindness in which, as aspects of ourselves and others arise in our awareness, they will not be met with fear or negativity. Then we trust the removal of ill will and self-view to have its effect. I think this is interesting. The language is quite eloquent. But I want to highlight a couple things out of it. There's a lot in there. But first of all, he um, he talks about metta being a, tr- a vast and transfiguring way of being, which I think is quite beautiful. And he points out that we need to include, of course, dictators and other things that we know we're supposed to put in our metta. But he, he explicitly says all aspects of ourselves and there's a, there's a whole realm of metta practice that is about opening to everything in us. And there, because there's so much that we've categorized, judged, put in boxes, created boundaries around, have ill will toward, all kinds of things within our own being. Um, and we need to heal some of that. And in doing so, it's not really just sort of a feel-good psychological release, um, but, which by the way would not be a minor thing, 
But he points even toward this bringing the mind into a position where it can open to awakening. It's quite, quite a big promise he's making through this. And then in the second part, where he's, the second aspect of the quote I read, where he says, we cultivate this field of kindness, and then he says, aspects of ourselves and others arise in our awareness, and they are not met with fear or negativity. So this is like that river. It's like that sky that's vast, and there's a field. He talks about a field of kindness in which things arise, including aspects of ourselves, including other people. And what the kindness does is it means that we're able to meet those things without fear or negativity, uh, which is an amazing way of being. We may know people that are somewhat like this, and they're very inspiring, actually. And again, there's this notice of aspects of ourselves and others to be able to meet. What would we like to be able to meet all aspects of ourselves? And then he says, we trust. We trust the removal of ill will and self-view will have its effect. And so there's not a sense of I'm doing this or I am metaing this away. That's another thing people sometimes do with meta practice is something that arises, they feel unpleasantness, they feel ill will, and they, and they quickly do a bunch of metta. Not saying, again, not saying this is a bad thing, but I think Ajahn Tuchito would say that's maybe good for a while, and then at some point we have to create this field in which it's actually okay for things to be there, and all we do, the, the kindness is in not meeting them with fear or negativity, but we still allow them to arise and have their life, because we're not afraid of them. So it's pointing toward the full acceptance of ourselves and eventually others. When we consider our good points and when we consider what we think of as our flaws. So he then points out that um, I want to talk also about the removal of self-view, which I think is interesting that he puts as part of metta. So we understand the removal of ill will. That's what we've been told all the time. Goodwill is the opposite of ill will. Why does he say that metta can have an effect of removing self-view? So he does explain that. He says that his, his idea there is that we usually live in a world of self-other distinction. And there's a, a definite um, favoring of the self, shall we say. And he, um, he points out just to categorize them three different ways that we tend to make self-other distinctions. One is the obvious one. There's myself, and then there's all the others. <laughs> and there's, you know, I'm an individual. I'm moving through an external world. I'm the constant, and there's a, a changing series of others that I encounter, other people, other situations, etc. And um, so that's one way. And then the second is one that he actually points out for meditators. Remember, he's a monk, so most a lot of the people that he works with are meditators. So he's noticed that uh, meditators do a second kind of duality. And it's actually a skillful one at the beginning, which is that we create an observer self, and then there's whatever we're observing in meditation, right? There's me. Uh, and then there's my mind, <laughs> or there's me and there's my breath, or me and my body, whatever it is. But we've, we create this little split where part of us is watching some other part. And this is actually a skillful thing to do at the beginning of practice in that we usually arrive 
totally lost in the flow of what's happening. And so it's really, people find enormous relief in being able to step back, watch, observe. It's like, oh, I don't have to just act that out. However, in the long run, what we've done is we've split the mind in a certain way. And so he says we have to be aware of this as meditators, because that will eventually have to have to be transformed also. I think the third kind is the most interesting, though. The third self-other that we create. And that is the difference between me right now and some ideal that I should be. Okay, so the way, or the way we'd like other things to be or other people to be, but it's basically between reality and a concept, which we do all the time. You know, how many of us have had the thought, oh, I really should, I should be more patient. It's a very, it's a simple enough um, wish and maybe a skillful one, but basically what we do is we've created me as I am right now, and we've created an ideal, or we've created a better person a better version of me who's patient, and then there's a gap between them, and it's like, I should close that gap, essentially. But he's saying that, um, and again, this might be okay, just like in meditation, creating the observer, but we have to be aware that we've done that, we've made a split of some kind, and there's a, a need there to be flexible about that and to be able to have that uh, duality exist or not exist only as it's as it's skillful. Very often what we do with these self-other distinctions of the three types is that we we mark them with ill will, right? So um, that's the opposite of metta. So we create a relationship and then we make a problem out of it, you know? It's It's so clear. So the relation comes with a feeling of inadequacy or wrongness. So I'm wrong, or you're wrong, or the world is screwed up, or I need to be less angry, or whatever it is, I need improvement, or I need to fix the world, or something. We have some view that's in there that's creating a gap, and there's a a sense of inadequacy and a feeling that we need to cross that. But that's all been created, actually. And so it's, it's interesting to see the mind doing that. We inevitably fail if we take an approach where we start from inadequacy and try to achieve adequacy. Um, it's not that self-improvement is completely um, useless. Definitely we need to make some effort on the path. We're not, if we're not there, we have something to do. But the, the trick in starting to get into the subtlety of metta is how do I do that without creating a sense of, I'm wrong right now, or I'm not adequate right now. What did Suzuki Roshi say? You're perfect just as you are, but you could use a little improvement. So I think that's a great, you know, it sounds like a paradox or one of those silly Zen things that people say, but I think he's pointing toward how we can hold it, you know, how we can work with ourself along the path while not feeling like at this given moment I'm not good enough. I'm not complete or something, because we're complete at every moment. We just don't know that yet. I'll pick this up from another teacher. The need to self-improve is often founded in self-criticism, self-judgment, and an absence of love. Before improving oneself, learn how to love oneself. Be at peace with oneself first, and from this space, make the decision to self-improve. 
Self-improvement remains a noble endeavor to engage in. But notice, a tree does not improve itself. It is present and it grows. The environment shapes it. Nature remains present and transforms. It's from an article called The Hidden Violence in Self-Improvement. So this is worth noticing, you know, to what degree we've taken on awakening as a self-improvement project, or, or even if we don't think about awakening or practice. The Buddha said this quite clearly in the beginning of the Dhammapada. Hatred never ends through hatred. Through non-hate alone does it here end. This is an ancient truth. Many people have heard that. It's often quoted. Hatred never ended through hatred. But it's usually quoted in the context of out in the world. You know, we've got the two sides fighting and tit for tat, and we're only counterattacking because you attacked us first, and it goes on. And so then you bring out hatred never ends through hatred, through non-hate alone. But what about for ourselves? You know, what about for the ill will that we have toward the child within us? That doesn't end by saying, this, this shouldn't be there. I need to get rid of this, and then I'll be better. Then I'll be awakened, then I'll be truly happy. It's more subtle than that. We have to love it away, in a sense. We'll just love it and let it be there. Ajahn Suchito says that metta practice is about extending the mind into sensitive places. I like that. So we look carefully, find our edges, and then with great care and kindness, work to soften and extend those edges. That's a lot of what metta practice is about. You might think for a moment if you have some aspect of your life where you you some time in your life when you got extended into a sensitive region, it could be a time that you chose uh, deliberately. You know, people take on practices like. I think I've mentioned here before, I took on the practice of being a hospital chaplain volunteer, going in and being a spiritual care volunteer. That was not so easy when I started to walk into a hospital room where I didn't know what was going on and offer myself to help with who knows what religion they were, who knows, you know, etc. That was an extension for me. I took it on deliberately as a practice. But we've all had times in our lives also when we got ourselves extended into some sensitive place, not by our choice. Some tragedy happened or some big life change happened, and there it was. We had to deal with it. And the question is, you know, how did we meet that? Did we have the strength of heart, or how did that grow? So if we're talking about transforming boundaries of, say, a self-other distinction or edges in our own being where we tend to judge ourselves, there are also um, 
It also extends more broadly into other views that we tend to carry. Consider this line from near the end of the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words about how to do Metta practice. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision. And it goes on to say that the person won't be reborn into this world. But I want to pick out that middle line. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision. What is that doing in the Metta Sutta? You know, the rest of it is about wishing well for beings in all realms and not despising any being in any state and opening the heart and protecting like a mother protects her child. And then there's this line right near the end, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one. It almost, um, when I first read it, that line, it jumped out at me because it wasn't, uh, didn't sound like the, the rest. So what does it mean? You know, what does not holding to fixed views mean in the context of developing goodwill and developing a mind that is boundless and not swayed? I'll offer some options. Um, One is that Ajahn Suchito in that chapter talks about about metta as being both non-ill will and then non-projection. I think is interesting. So he talks about it combating aversion and also combating delusion. So non-projection, how many of us can claim that we are not projecting? That is very difficult. You know, we tend to have ourself as a standard, our beliefs, our understanding, and we walk with a certain lens on the world. Again, we have to do this when we grow up. We have to develop Um, some kind of understanding, some cultural sensitivity, some social awareness with the group that we're in, and all of that is useful and helpful and bonding, and it amounts to a certain amount of projection, (laughs) which eventually, you know, we have to deal with when we um, meet people who didn't have our particular social group growing up, or etc. So non-projection the problem with projection is that it doesn't it's that it binds the other person. They're not free. If we're projecting onto them our particular view, um, there's a way in which the person is um, confined. It's only part of them is seen. And that might be fine for the most part, but there's a there can be a feeling at some level. Like um like let's say that one time, just one time in your entire life, you got angry at somebody. And that happened to be the first time that you met that person. And forever into the future, that person sees you as the angry person. And you feel like saying to them every time, no, no, it's not usually like that. I don't know what happened. That was the first time in months, you know, that I snapped at somebody, but too late, you know, to them, you are the angry person. That's what it feels like to receive a projection. And we do this all the time, maybe not that bluntly, but in ways that we don't see too easily. And so there's often a lot of work through Dharma practice to understand at a deeper level what it is that we're projecting. We're really painting the world, uh, painting our, our views and preferences onto the world, and it, it affects what it is that we can see. 
in the world. They say if, when a thief sees a saint, all he sees is the pockets, something like that. Um, look at this, there's this amazing being, but you're focused on the pockets. That's what you want. That's what you see. Or not holding to fixed views could be not clinging to how I think things should be. And that is freeing for other people. If I don't have a clear need for things to be a certain way that's more open. Not imposing my views on others uh, in a way that isn't isn't welcomed by them. There's a um, teaching in here, this book, the Sutta Nipata. It's, a lot of it is about, um, it's an interesting little text, a lot of it is actually about our tendency to have fixed views. So I consider it significant that there's an entire book of the Pali Canon devoted to the problems with fixed views and how to let go of them. <laughs> like, this was a problem even 2,600 years ago. I won't, this is a long thing, but um, I'll just pick out some parts. It's also in a little bit, the translation's a little bit, uh, keeps the ancient language. So it says, um, dependent on what's seen, heard, and sensed, dependent on habits and practices, one shows disdain for others. Taking a stance on one's decisions, praising oneself, one says, my opponent's a fool and unskilled. Have we ever engaged in this? <laughs> yes, right? I like it, though. He, he makes it very pragmatic. Dependent on what's seen, heard, and sensed. Dependent on habits and practices. So this is all about just, you know, our experience, what we see, hear, sense, and then what we've habitually done over time. That turns into a view that says, I get it. This is how it is, and this is how it needs to be. And if you don't understand this, you're you're not very smart. <laughs> you know, you didn't get it. Meanwhile, they're thinking, boy, she really doesn't get it, based on what they have seen and heard and sensed in their habits and practices, right? And this can be a real issue, right? Um, I mean, it's not so far off to say this is the cause of war, at some level, seeing things in radically different ways and insisting that the other party needs to see it your way or they're wrong. Actually, the title of this sutta is The Minor Causes of Contention. There's also one called The Major Causes of Contention. (laughs) So at the end of this particular sutta, it says, taking a stance on your decisions and yourself as your measure you dispute further down into the world. But a person who's abandoned all decisions creates no strife in the world. I think we're invited to ask, what would it mean to create no strife in the world? Strife is a strong word. I don't think he's saying that we just become a doormat and agree with whatever anybody says. Um, That wouldn't be respectful of us. You know, that might create some strife in our own heart, out of our own self-respect, so that doesn't seem quite right. But creating strife in the form of telling other people that they're wrong, explaining how things really are, and this is what you need to believe, um, projecting. I think he's pointing toward 
the maybe that there's greater ubiquity of this than we think there is. Maybe we should look more carefully at our own mind. So, summing all of this up in a sense, Ajahn Suchicho said that he started practicing with a very simple intention just to carry throughout the day. May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. That was just his general wish, where this, may this be, is the action, the speech, even the thought that he's about to do. May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. And what a great way to go through the world. I'll close with this poem from Eric Fried called, What It Is. It is nonsense, says reason. It is what it is, says love. It is a disaster, says logic. It is nothing but pain, says fear. It is hopeless, says common sense. It is what it is, says love. It is ridiculous, says pride. It is foolhardy, says prudence. It is impossible, says experience. It is what it is, says love. So love as a practice of wisdom, as a way to develop wisdom about who we are, what we are, how to relate without strife, based on not holding to fixed views and accepting all aspects of ourselves. Are there any comments or questions? about uh, speech. Mm. So I found that in terms of sort of fixedness of views coming in, that I seem to carry a lot of my habit patterns in my speaking. Mm. Or that like it basically as soon as I'm, you know, I can, you know, during the day kind of get these, you know, sort of nice whiffs of feeling kind of a little freer or a little more open or a little more and then like someone comes in my office and we start talking and it's just like sort of sucked right into these uh, certain kinds of patterns Mm -hmm. just wondering um, how does one deal with uh, this feels like there's a lot of uh, inertia around interrelating with speech or a lot of patterning and Mm -hmm. um, how do you uh, start breaking those up to kind of you know, as, as a place where views tend to fix. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the views get revealed when we manifest them in speech, right? Um, so you've already started uh, by noticing, noticing that you have certain patterns. You know, it's actually, um, that's the step back that we take first. Sometimes when we hear about wise speech, uh, the sense is, okay, I'm going to memorize the list. It's supposed to be true, beneficial, timely, and kind. 
And then we go around and we try to speak in that way. But this doesn't work because our, we have a, we're not transforming those patterns that we already have about speech by kind of forcing our speech to be a different way. It, we're just adding on uh, an adjunct, basically. It's not so transformative. So the practice of wise speech, uh, when one is taking it on as a wisdom practice, is to observe how we actually speak and then use the um, feelings that come with that as the means to transform them. This is actually what Ajahn Suchito says, what he was talking about, meeting with a field of kindness and just allowing anything to arise in that and trusting that uh, non-ill will and uh, non-projection would come from that or the letting go of self. So speech is no different. It's stickier because speech is, um, can, be, can be stickier. But the practice is basically to learn to be aware at the same time that you speak and um, allow the awareness of that, allow the speech to happen in a field of awareness that is interested in not suffering. You know, so any kind of a wise field of awareness. And you'll find that over time your speech transforms because you don't want to suffer. And so um, that's a good place to start. There may be some that are ingrained a little more deeply and have to be worked with directly, but that'll take care of some, some low-hanging fruit. So you might give that a try. And literally, what do you do? Um, make your awareness as wide as the room, for example. So there's another person in the room and you're engaging with them. Um, instead of falling into that very small awareness that comes just from being with that, if you can see them as being within the space of the room, that already that creates that um, field that you need to see what's happening in. That's a that's a good way to try. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.